Chapter 7 of The Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Ficklin. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Cable Chatterton. Chapter 7 Piracy in Elizabethan Times. But although the Mediterranean was the sphere of the barbarian corsairs, yet the sea lawlessness was not confided to that area. The narrow seas were just about as bad as they had been in the Middle Ages, and Elizabeth, with the determination for which she was famous, took the matter in hand. As early as the year 1564, she commanded Sir Peter Carew to fit out an expedition to clear the seas of any pirates and rovers that haunted the coasts of Devonshire and Cornwall. Yet it was an almost impossible task, for the men of these parts had gotten the sea fever. Fishing was less profitable than it might be, but to capture ships instead of fish was a very paying industry and had just that amount of adventure which appealed to the Elizabethans. And bear in mind that, as in the case of the later smugglers, these men had at their backs for financial support the rich landowners, who found the investment tempting. It was because the colonies in the New World were yielding such wondrous treasure that the English pirates found the Spanish ships so well worth waiting for and pillaging. Again and again did Philip make demands to Elizabeth that this nuisance would be stopped, insisting that in no case should a convicted English pirate be pardoned. He requested that Her Majesty's officers in the west of England ports should cease from allowing these marauders to take stores aboard, or even frequent these harbors. Rewards, he begged, should even be offered for their capture, and all persons on shore who aided these miscreants should be punished severely. It was because of Philip's complaint, no less than the complaint of her own merchants, that the Queen was compelled to adopt severe measures. She dispatched more ships to police the seas, but with what advantage? Up came a ship bound from Flanders to Spain with a cargo of tapestry, clocks, and various other articles for Philip. The English pirates could not let such a prize go past, so they stopped the ship and plundered her. The Queen's next effort was to cause strict inquiries to be made along the coast in order to discover the haunts of these northern corsairs. Harbor commissioners were appointed, says Lindsay, to inquire and report on all vessels leaving or entering port, and all landed proprietors who had encouraged the pirates were threatened with penalties. But it was an impossible task, as I will explain. First of all, consider the fact that after centuries of this free sea-roving, no government, no amount of threats, could possibly transform the character of the English seamen. If, for instance, tomorrow, Parliament were to make a law forbidding the North Sea fishermen to proceed in their industry, nothing but shells for men of war would prevent the men from putting to sea. Years of occupation would be too strong to resist. So what was with the seamen in the Elizabethan age? It began by that hatred of their French neighbors. It was encouraged by the privileges which the Cinque ports enjoyed, though it was in the blood of the English seamen quite apart from any royal permission. But there was in the time of Elizabeth still a further difficulty. Those privateers whom the law had permitted to go forth sea-roving had become too strong to be suppressed. Privateering strictly consists of a private ship or ships having a commission to seize or plunder the ships of an enemy. In effect, it amounts to legalized piracy, and anyone can realize that in a none-too-law-abiding age such as the 16th century, the dividing line between piracy and privateering was so very fine that it was almost impossible to say which pillaging was legal and which was unjustifiable. That alone was sufficient reason for the frequent releases of alleged pirates at the time. True, the Crown allowed privateering, though the commissions were limited only to the attacks on our acknowledged enemies. Yet it was futile to expect that these rude Devonshire seamen would have any respect to legal finesse. To control these men adequately was too much to expect. French and Spanish and Flemish merchantmen, regardless of nationality, were alike liable to fall into English pirates' hands. Some of the backers were making quite a handsome income, and who shall say that some of those fine Elizabethan mansions in our country were not built out of such illegal proceeds? 
The mayor of Dover, for instance, with some of the leading inhabitants of that port, had captured over 600 prizes from the French, to say nothing of the number of neutrals which he had pillaged. This was in the year 1563, and already he had plundered 61 Spanish ships. And there was the valuable trade passing to and from Antwerp and London, which was a steady source of revenue for the pirates at this time. You cannot be surprised, then, at that important incident in 1564 that did so much to enrage the English seamen and help matters forward to the climax in the form of the Spanish Armada. For what happened? Philip, seeing how little Elizabeth was doing to put down this series of attacks on his treasure ships, had in the year mentioned suddenly issued an order arresting every English ship and all the English crews that happened to be found on his own harbors. It was a drastic measure, but we can quite understand the impetuous and furious Spaniard acting on this wise. During Elizabeth's reign, there were, of course, some pirates who had the bad fortune to be arrested. One little batch suspected, including a Captain Hyden, Richard Daigle, and a man named Corbet. Included in the same gang were Robert Hitchens, Philip Redhead, Roger Shaster, and others. The first three mentioned succeeded in fleeing away, beyond capture, but the remainder admitted their guilt. Hitchens was a man of about fifty years old and a native of Devonshire, but both he and his companions contested that they had been deceived by Hyden and Daigle, and they had undertaken a voyage to Rochelle, presumably in a merchant ship, whereas the trip had turned out to be nothing else than a piratical expedition. Their version of the incident was that in June 1564, they captured a Flemish ship, and to her were transferred 13 Scots, who were forming part of this supposedly merchant ship. The Flemish ship with the Scots on board now sailed away, as there was some disagreement with the rest of the party. They proceeded to Ireland, where their skipper joined them, and they also committed robberies on the coast of Spain. Having captured a ship with a cargo of wine, they proceeded to the extreme southwest corner of Ireland, which, even in this 20th century, is still a wild, lonely spot, and rarely visited by any craft excepting the British Navy, an occasional cable-lying ship, and sometimes a coaster or two. Bearhaven is a ford which goes out of Bantry Bay. On the one side rise high, rocky hills. On the other lies the island of Bear. It is a safe, clear anchorage and a wild, inaccessible spot. Here the captured ship was taken and the wine sold. An arrangement was made with the Lord O'Sullivan by which the pirates could rely on his assistance. For Cobay with one ship and a man named Lessingham, who was in charge of another ship, were prevented by O'Sullivan from falling into the hands of Elizabeth's ships that had been sent to capture them. Lusingham, however, had been slain by a piece of ordnance, as he was in the act of waving his cap towards the Queen's ships at Bearhaven, but Corbet was yet alive. It was alleged that Hyden and Corbet had agreed jointly to fit out the John of Sandwich, giving her all the necessary guns with the hope of being able to capture a good ship wherewith to provide Corbet. But whilst in the English Channel, a storm had sprung up, and the ship had sprung a leak. They were therefore forced into Alderney, where the vessel became a wreck, and Hyden, Corbet, Daigle, as well as fourteen others, made their escape in a small penance. It was discovered that Robert Hitchens had been all of his life given to piracy, so, after having been arrested in the Channel Isles, he was executed at the low-water mark near St. Martin's Point, Guernsey, and there his body was left in chains as a warning to others. The rest of the prisoners were afterwards ordered by Elizabeth to be set free, after a good and sharp admonition to beware hereafter to fall again into the damage of our laws. They were bidden to return to their native places and to get their living by honest labor. It is a proof that the crown valued her seamen by an interesting proclamation that was made in 1572 when there was a likeliness of war. The queen went so far as to promise pardon for all piracies hitherto committed by any mariners who should now put their ships into her naval service. And we must not forget that, at a later date, the first tidings of the Armada's advent were brought into Plymouth by a patriotic English pirate named Fleming. Fleming, wrote John Smith, the great Elizabethan traveler and founder of the English colony of Virginia, was an expert and as much sought for as any other pirates of the queen's reign yet such a friend to his country that discovering the Spanish Armada he voluntarily came to Plymouth, yielded himself freely to my Lord Admiral, 
and gave notice of the Spaniards coming, which good warning came so happily and unexpectedly that he had his pardon and a good reward. As in all lands, writes this delightful Elizabethan, where there are many people, there are some thieves, so in all seas much frequented, there are some pirates. The most ancient within the memory of threescore years was one Callus, who most refreshed himself upon the coast of Wales. Clinton and Purser, his companions, who grew famous, till Queen Elizabeth of blessed memory hanged them at Wapping. Now this John Callus, or Callus, after his arrest, wrote a letter of repentance to Walsingham, saying, I bewail my former wicked life, and beseech God and her majesty to forgive me, if she will spare my life and use me in her service by sea, with those she can trust best, either to clear the coasts of other wicked pirates or otherwise, as I know their haunts, roads, creeks, and maintainers so well, I can do more therein than if she sent ships abroad and spent twenty thousand pounds. Thinking thereby to obtain pardon, Collis accordingly forwarded particulars of his fellow pirates, their maintainers and victuallers of me and my companies. This list contained the names and addresses of the purchasers and receivers of goods which had been pillaged from two Portuguese, one French, a Spanish, and a Scotch ship, which Collis and a Captain Sturgis of Rochelle had pirated. If he were given his liberty, this loquacious corsair further promised that he would also bring in a Danish ship, which he had pirated. He promised also to warn Walsingham to take care that Sullivan Bear of Bearhaven does not practice any treason, towards Her Majesty there, as he alleged that Sullivan had told Callus in the former's castle of Bearhaven that James Fitmorris and a number of Frenchmen were determined to land there if they could attain pilots to guide them thither. The old pirate further alleged that they had tried to persuade himself to join them and become their guide, promising him large gifts. But I would not join any rebel of Her Majesty, he wrote grand eloquently, hoping her mercy in time to come. Last March, he went on, while he was riding at anchor at Torbay, he met a Frenchman, commanded by Captain Maloner, who came aboard Collis's ship and sought information regarding the Irish coast and the best harbors. Collis informed him the best were Cork and Kinsale. His inquirers then asked whether Bearhaven and Dingle were good places to land. They told me if I would go over with them to France, I need not fear the Queen for any offense that I had done. The French king would pardon him for anything Callus had done against his majesty's subjects, and he would give him three thousand crowns to become his subject and be sworn his man, as well as a yearly fee during his life. I asked him why his master wanted to use me, and he said his master shortly wanted to do some service on the coast of Ireland, and wanted pilots. Callus protested that he had declined this invitation, to which the other man was reported to have replied that he would never have a chance if such preferment offered him in England. But though this made a very fine yarn, the authorities were too well aware of Collis's past history to give it much credence. The misery of a pirate, although many are as sufficient seamen as any, yet in regard of his superfluity, wrote the founder of Virginia, you shall find it such that any wise man would rather live among wild beasts than amongst them. Therefore let all unadvised persons take heed how they entertain that quality. And I could wish merchants, gentlemen, and all settlers forth of ships not to be sparring of any competent pay, nor true payment, for neither soldiers nor seamen can live without means, but necessity will force them to steal, and when they are once entered into that trade, they are hardly reclaimed. Poverty, as well as the love of adventure and the lust for gain, had certainly to be reckoned among the incentives to this life. So steadily had the evil grown that on the 7th of August, 1579, York complained to Lord Burgey that the sea had never been so full of pirates, and a Plymouth ship which had set out from St. Malo, born for Dartmouth, had been robbed and chased on the rocks. Nonetheless, the persons of credit who had been appointed in every haven, creek, or other landing place round the coast, in order to deal with the evil, were doing their best, and three notable pirates had some time before been arrested and placed in York Castle together with other pirates. But the practice of piracy, as we have seen, was the peculiar failing of no country exclusively, 
though in certain parts of the world and in certain centuries pirates were more prevalent than elsewhere. The very men who in the English Channel might have attained disgrace and wealth of sea robbers, also, when they went into the Mediterranean, be himself pillaged by those barbarian corsairs of whom we spoke just now. Many an exciting brush did the mariners of England encounter with these men, and many were the sad tales which reached England of the cruelties of the Muslim tyrants. An interesting account of such adventures related by Master Roger Bodingham. The incident really happened seven years before Elizabeth came to the throne, but it may not be out of place here to deal with it. After having set forth from Gravesend in the great barker Oucher, bound for the island of Candia and Chio in the Levant, the ship arrived at Messina in Sicily. But it was made known that a good many Muslim galleys were in the Levant, and the rest of the voyage would be more risky. The Oucher's crew got to know this, so that Bodenham was not likely to get farther on his way and deliver his cargo at Chio. Then, he writes, I had no small business to cause my mariners to venture with the ship in such manifest danger. Nevertheless, I won them to go with me, except three which I set on land. But these presently begged to come aboard again, and were taken, and the ship got under way. A Greek pilot was taken on board, and when off Chio, three Turkish pirates were suddenly espised. These were giving chase to a number of small boats, which were sailing rigged with a lateen sail. It happened that in one of the latter was the son of the pilot, and at this Greek's request, Bodenham steered towards the Turks, and caused the Oucher's gunner to fire a demi-culverin at the chaser that was just about to board one of the boats. This was such a good shot that the Turk dropped astern. Presently, all the little boats came and begged that they might be allowed to hang on to the Oucher's stern until daylight. After clearing from Chio, Bodenham took his ship to Candia and Messina. But whilst on the way thither, and in the very waters where the Battle of Lepanto was presently to be fought, he found some of the Turkish galliots pirating some Venetian ships laden with muscatels, and, good Samaritan that he was, Bodenham succeeded in driving off the Muslim aggressors and rescuing the merchantmen. I rescued them, he writes briefly, and had but a barrel of wine for my powder and shot. End of chapter 7 Recording by Dan Ficklin